Welcome to the latest episode in our RD Audio podcast series. My name is Steve Joy from the Researcher Development Team at the University of Cambridge. In this episode, I interviewed Tracy Stead on the topic of imposter syndrome. Now, Tracy has 20 years professional experience spanning higher education and research, and also the public and private sector. And for seven years, she's run her own business as a trainer, consultant, and a professional coach. And she has a long-standing interest in imposter syndrome. Tracy and I actually know one another through a national leadership network focusing on future leadership capabilities, which is sponsored by UKRI. And it's through that work that we got talking about imposter syndrome. There is some anecdotal evidence coming through at the moment that imposter syndrome, which has always been prevalent in academia, has really been on the rise in the last year. It seems that that could well be exacerbated by working remotely for some people, also the increased pressure and uncertainty. And it's having an impact on the way people feel able to speak up, to put themselves forward for things, to present their work, to articulate a vision for where they're going with their research programme. So Tracy has some really fantastic insights to share on what imposter syndrome really is, where it comes from, why it's not always a completely bad thing. And she has some really useful tactics on how to keep it in check. And she also put me through my paces at one point with a particular exercise on managing that inner critic. As ever, we'll share some resources so that you can look up the references in the talk. And I hope you find the session as valuable and useful as I did recording it with her. And like always, we would be really glad to hear your feedback. So tweet us or email us, drop us a line in some way to let us know what you think and to let us know if you have ideas for future RD Audio episodes, whether that's topics you want us to cover, particular individuals you hope we might be able to interview, panel discussions, etc. You name it, we are here to serve you and to respond to whatever you think would be valuable. In the meantime, enjoy this discussion. I hope you find it useful. And I hope that we will meet again on another RD Audio podcast recording. So Tracy, thanks very much for joining us this afternoon to talk about imposter syndrome. I think I want to kick straight off with a really obvious question, but an important one. What is it? Uh, that's a very good question. And thank you for, for having me. Um, so it, it's a phrase that's been used a lot and we've heard it a lot in the last few years. I've been hearing it kicking around for about 10 years. Um, so I'm sure lots, lots of people know what it is, but um, it's that imposter, imposter feelings are those feelings of being a fraud, of being found out. I'm not good enough. Someone's going to notice that I shouldn't be here or I don't deserve to be here. Everyone else is cleverer than me. That, that kind of um, thought and feeling that we have. Um, so there's imposter feelings and there's imposter syndrome. So imposter feelings, most of us have at some point in time and it's triggered by different things. Um, imposter syndrome is where people have that chronically and where it's happening almost all of the time and it really starts to inhibit um, their day-to-day -day lives. Um, the, the, if you're interested in the history of the, of, the, of the phrase imposter syndrome, it actually comes from, um, it was first published as far as I know, way back in the 1970s. That really surprised me. I thought it had only been around for the last 10, 12 years or so, um, but it was actually first used in a, in a psychology journal publication. Um, some psychologists were looking at the, um, the prevalence of imposter 
syndrome and, and imposter feelings amongst, amongst high achieving women. So that's where it was first noticed. That's fascinating. I had no idea. I wonder if it's a kind of imposter syndrome that we think it must be peculiarly modern and we don't believe that it would. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, it could be. Could be. Definitely. And you mentioned that it's something that you've been hearing a lot and perhaps increasingly in recent years. And of course, you work primarily with uh, researchers and academics. Do you think that it is a particular problem in academia? Is it particularly common to researchers, this imposter syndrome? I believe that it really is. And, you know, if you just think back to what I was just saying about where it was first published, it was an article about high achieving women. So um, I really don't think it's a women thing. I think it's high achieving thing, although there are, there are particular um, places where you might see it happening with women more than men. And we might come on to that later. Um, but I think it's really common in academia and research for, for a couple of reasons, really. Um, so, Impost, the imposter voice, um, it, it comes about because it's ultimately it's a bit of a protection mechanism. It's, a, it's something that tries to check our behaviour and make us just think twice before we leap into a situation or we put ourselves in front of what we might perceive to be a bit of a threat. Um, and that protection mechanism kicks in where we think we might be vulnerable to humiliation or shame or embarrassment. Um, or being found out if we think we're not we're not good enough. Um, and if you think about what happens in research as academics, we're in the business of learning. We're in the business of pushing boundaries forward. We're doing research, which is all about learning and pushing boundaries forward and doing things that haven't been done before. And so naturally, as academics and researchers, we are working in in a bit of a stretch zone. So we're kind of stretching ourselves. We're pushing ourselves all of the time. And you may have heard of a model called comfort stretch panic. So at any one point in time, we're, we're facing a certain level of challenge. And if that level of challenge is really low, we're in our comfort zone. In our comfort zone, we're really, well, we're comfortable, but we're, um, we're relaxed, we're not stressed, but we're also not really learning. We, we might get bored and disengaged. When the level of challenge increases, we enter into our stretch zone. And in our stretch zone, you know, the adrenaline might go up, we might start to have a physical response to that stretch. We start to pay more attention. The adrenaline helps us to, to function and to perform more effectively. Um, and we start to actually, our productivity levels really, really increase. Now, if that level of challenge increases even further and really pushes us, we then enter in what, into what's called a, uh, a panic zone. And in our panic zone, this, that physiological stress response has got so high that we can't function, we can't concentrate, and we start to make mistakes, and our productivity then goes down again. And, and I think that our imposter syndrome um, is, is a part of a protection mechanism that's trying to prevent us getting into that panic and, and getting into stress that might be caused by embarrassment or difficulty or humiliation. So I think it's the, the nature of what we do as researchers and academics is we're naturally in a challenging environment, we're doing challenging things. But I think the second thing about it is we're surrounded by very clever people. And so that threat level seems even worse. Because if you think about if we're just walking down the street and the normal populations around us, 1%, 1.5% of people have a PhD. 
when we're walking around the corridors of a university, well, who knows, you know, it's over 50%, probably, depending on the time of year and where I am. Some so, of them have got more than one PhD. Well, exactly. So, and particularly for early career researchers, we know that there are people around us who are a potential threat. And, and it almost feels like that animal instinct, I'm going to protect myself here. And so those beliefs of I'm not good enough kind of stop us saying things and stop us putting ourselves forward for opportunities because we're scared that we might be humiliated or whatever it might be or, or embarrassed. Um, Are you saying that that not putting ourselves forward is in a sense not necessarily consciously but something in us is wanting to stay in our comfort zone that we yeah. we haven't reached a, a a feeling of that kind of safety to be able to make ourselves vulnerable by risking an idea or yeah. risking something new making contact with someone yeah or I, I suppose is there also when you're talking about challenge could that be challenge in the sense of the scale of the work like just the sheer to-do list rather than that the tasks themselves are particularly challenging Yes, yeah, so both of those things. I think it's 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 the scale, it's quantity and difficulty. Um, I think, and so what I often talk about the imposter voice is it's it's kind of that running commentary of you're not good enough or you'd better not do that, and it's often saying things like, well, once you have done this qualification, then you'll be okay to put yourself forward, or once you've got this experience, then you'll be okay, um, and the imposter voice in my opinion, and the way I like to think about it, is it's, it's one voice that we have in our head, and it's part of a bigger, what I call an inner critic. So the inner critic is that constant dialogue that some people have, some people have it constantly, but some of us have it occasionally, dialogue of, oh, that was a bit stupid, or, oh, what, you, what gosh, why didn't you think of that before? And it's that constant kind of berating ourselves. And I think just the, the, the feelings of fraudulence is just an element of that inner, inner critic. Um, and I think the inner critic, the way that I like to describe it is that the inner, the inner critic is like a part of us that's trying to wrap us in cotton wool and protect us. Um, and by protecting us from potential bad things, scary things, it also indirectly or directly protects us from good things as well. So by choosing not to put myself forward for something, I'm also missing out on opportunities as well. That's fascinating that it's a protection, but also then it's we're, we're effectively disempowering ourselves and and limiting yeah. the scope of opportunity that we might have. I, you've you've talked there about why it might be particularly common in research. Do we know about where it comes from? You know, when it comes, how it develops? Yeah. Then, yeah. So it develops alongside us. So. Um, and it's really interesting when you think about where these kind of limiting self-beliefs, this kind of hyper self-awareness and this, this fear of shame, it kicks in in childhood. So if you think of small children, they don't have a fear of shame. You know, they don't care. And, and I, I really noticed this. So one of the things that I do as a volunteer is I, I volunteer at a children's literary festival. So I'm kind of helping to steward and um, we have all these you know, hundreds of children come into a room and they're entertained by an author. And we have these events for lots of different um, age groups of children. And it's really interesting to notice that when the author wants the engagement from the audience and they're saying, who's got an idea? And the children are desperate, putting their hands up and they're desperate to engage and they want to come up on the stage and be involved in performing. 
when the children are really young, they're all itching to get involved. And when they hit this kind of eight, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten age, they all just sit looking embarrassed and they and they and very few of them want to put their hands up and and, and to me that's almost like that's where you know that imposter voice has started to kick in. Um, so it's where that where your self-awareness starts to kick in. So I think it, it happens in early years development, but you know, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a child psychologist. So I'm sure there'll be someone out there wanting to, you know, who'll know a lot more about this than me. But my understanding and my experience is that that imposter voice and the inner critic develops alongside us and it's it learns from our experiences so if we've had a bad experience so maybe I was bullied in the playground or maybe I had a really strict um, teacher or maybe I had a bossy or strict parent or maybe I had a sibling that I I would compete with um, so all of those experiences or, or might, it might have even been an accident so I did something silly and have an accident my that's kind of feeding my inner critic with data about what I need to protect myself from. And it's gathering all this information and data so that when it's trying to convince me as an adult not to do something, it will say to me, well, remember that time when dot, dot, dot. You know, so I'm protecting you from this, aren't I good? So it's this kind of, you must listen to me because I, you know, I'm pointing out where you failed before. You don't want to do that again. So often it's that, that kind of voice. Um, and of course, it's part of us. It's never going to go away. Um, and it's also as clever as us as well. It's had the same education. So it can really tell a good story and convince us that we should listen to it and not put ourselves forward for something. I love that idea that it's just as clever as we are because it's had yeah. the same education <laughs> we've had. I think I don't know whether I find it comforting or not, but it's an interesting idea. Well, you, you are very clever, Steve. So I imagine that your imposter voice is pretty cunning as well. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> I think one of the ideas that I have heard talked about in higher education when thinking about sort of academic development, particularly thinking about students, is the concept of a kind of learnt helplessness that actually for those people who have been academically high achieving say in school you know getting top grades they then come mm. to university maybe at undergraduate level they've carried on getting top grades mm. they've then done their masters maybe got a distinction in their dissertation and actually that the imposter feelings that you're describing I guess I wonder to what extent they they're not necessarily always about past experience but also about a kind of anticipation of failure that yes is difficult to tolerate yeah and I think that's a really good point and it's something that, that I see a lot in academia and particularly you know, those first few months of doing a PhD um or, or any kind of doctorate you know you've been top of your class for years you've always been a high achiever you've always got perfect marks and and to some extent in the education system, you're kind of you're you're told that there's almost like perfect knowledge about things. Here's the answer to this question. And then all of a sudden you learn there isn't an answer to this question. And actually, we don't know how to solve this problem and go and try some things and they will fail. And so we don't we haven't developed this mechanism for, for failing. And I think it's a cultural thing as well. I think in some countries, you know, you know, stereotypically in America, people are much less scared of failure. If you look at the numbers of, I'm talking, I'm not going to give you any kind of numbers here off the top of my head, but, you know, that anecdotally, we know that there are a lot more kind of startups and failures of businesses in the US because people are just much more willing to fail at things. Um, and it's a really, 
such a hugely important aspect of being a researcher because if we if everything always worked actually where would our research be it wouldn't have progressed as far as if we found out things that didn't work as well and so we're scared of failing because we've never failed before and, and developed a mechanism to deal with it and so i absolutely agree with it that some of it's new since since arriving in academia and research i, I think i'd slightly prejudge this question without meaning to <laughs> I, we were gonna we talked about you know why it might be common and where it comes from and how it develops alongside us mm. and has the same education that we've had um and I, I i'm wondering then do you think it manifests in particular places or in particular circumstances yeah yeah there's some there's some really common ones and um i run quite a lot of workshops on imposter syndrome where i have early career researchers, well, actually anyone who works in academia, and, and also it crops up a lot when I'm doing one-to-one -one coaching with people as well. There are some really common scenarios and places. The most common ones are in meetings, um, and particularly in meetings where there are more senior people than you. So some, I've had some PhD students who say it's just any time they meet their supervisor. Um, and then other people will say, you know, it's if I'm in a meeting where there are lots of senior managers or people who I know know a lot more than me um it's and then you know a, a progression from being in meetings it's presenting my research in front of an audience kind of being thrown to the lions a little bit sometimes and we know what it can be like presenting at academic conferences when there's the q a at the end <gasps> i won't be able to answer the questions what if they point something out about um, so, so the kind of q a and presenting at conferences um starting anything new so just starting a new project, starting a new job, starting a new data collection, that kind of thing. Um, another one is where, where we're perceived or we're holding ourselves up as some kind of expert. So often that's when we start teaching. So teaching undergraduate, or they think I know everything. Uh oh, I don't know everything. I'm going to fail and look terrible. And I think another one that's really common is um, submitting applications for interviews or grant applications or even thinking about whether i'm ready to put in an application for you know I, i'm not good enough to even think about applying for that job or that grant funding um, and that's one where there has been research that shows that women really hold themselves back in their career and it, and it could be responsible actually for the pay gap for the gender pay gap that women when they are suffering from imposter syndrome everybody does it but it's, it's it's been measured in women and we know that it's a common thing if they don't have everything on a job description they won't put themselves forward for a job because their imposter voice is saying well you are not good enough and you will get found out um and then just other things like you know showing showing your writing to your supervisor for the first time or submitting papers all of those sorts of things where i'm being held up to scrutiny or i perceive that i'm being held up to scrutiny that they're the common ones it's fascinating listening to that list because my research was more than 10 years ago but i had a visceral reaction to a couple <laughs> yeah. of experiences you described i can i can really recall the the anxiety the vulnerability the 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 imposter feeling of that yeah. first time you present your research yeah um, absolutely even actually and the first meeting with the supervisor for yes. example took yeah. me for lunch and i was so nervous i couldn't eat oh no and and i remember I still, like you say, that visceral reaction, I still remember that feeling of handing the first chapter of my thesis to my supervisor. And I should have sent it to him 
probably a month before I actually did but I spent a month trying to polish it and make it perfect because my imposter was saying if you just do a little bit more just do a little bit more and then and then you then he won't laugh at you but actually I've completely missed the point of you know I need to give it to him to get feedback to know what I've done wrong not try and make it perfect <laughs> give it to him you know it was but I, I, I can I totally I didn't realize that's what was happening back then I didn't have the language around it or the understanding but it absolutely held me back and probably delayed me finishing quite substantially it's so interesting what you say as well that if there wasn't that inbuilt element of risk that uncertainty in what we're doing then it it wouldn't really justify three to four years being spent on it you know that a PhD or a postdoc fellowship or something that you know if we if we know at the beginning what the answer is and there's not an element of jeopardy in yeah. the in the discovery then then yeah, is it worthy of a PhD what's it for you know absolutely and I think one of my beliefs is that I think one of the most important aspects of being a researcher is dealing with things going wrong if 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 you were sat in your viva and the examiners said tell tell me about something that went wrong in your PhD and how did you deal with it and you said oh nothing went wrong because I'm perfect you know not you wouldn't say because I'm perfect if you said oh nothing went wrong they absolutely wouldn't believe you they'd probably think you were in denial and also they might think well if nothing went wrong here I'm not quite sure this person's qualified to be a doctorate yet and a top tip for job interviews, um, if anyone is thinking that the best answer to the question, do you have any weaknesses, is, well, you know, I am rather a perfectionist. And, you know, headline, that's a terrible answer. <laughs> you look like someone who has no self-awareness rather than someone who is perfect. Definitely. And also when, I, when I've been um, in the position where I've interviewed people, if someone had said, oh, I've never had anything go wrong, and then the next candidate said, two or three things have gone wrong in my experience and here's how I dealt with them I'd be much more inclined to go with that person the, the latter person because they've experienced failure absolutely no I agree also from my experience of interviewing you talked a bit there about those different kinds of places where we, you know we, we probably all everyone listening will have had some of those experiences you described and may have may have had that same visceral kind of reaction that we were talking about so we're we're kind of describing the ways in which imposter syndrome can be very negative the way it can impact quite strongly to inhibit us from doing mm. things but do you think there are ever circumstances when imposter syndrome is actually beneficial i'm i'm cautious about saying yes because then it gives our imposter voice that that evidence of oh, that person on the podcast said it was okay so you must listen to me um but the thing about our imposter voice, like I was saying earlier, it's very clever, but there's always a little element of truth in everything that it says. You know, if it's saying, oh, you know, don't go and speak at that conference because somebody might, you know, um, point out that you don't know something. Well, it's potentially, that is potentially true. Um, it's also potentially not true. Um, and so I think very sparingly I think sometimes we might choose to listen to our imposter voice because it just makes us just stop and check ourselves a bit it just makes us momentarily stop and think actually could I have thought about that a little bit more or is there something else I could do so it it, it does nudge us to stretch ourselves a little bit I think but I think we just need to have some balance and not be listening to, to it all the time um and and in the workshops that I run often people will justify it's it's good because it keeps me um you know 
it keeps my ego in check it stops me looking arrogant and that kind of thing I think potentially it does yes but I think you, we don't need to listen to it too much to prevent us being, being really arrogant and lacking lacking empathy so I think it does kind of help us to be a bit self-aware and and to just be aware of where there might potentially be a threat to our career but I don't I think we need to really hugely put it into proportion I think when we have imposter syndrome and those imposter feelings it's where it's got it out of all proportion and we're listening to it all the time so I'm thinking I had been wanting to ask you how are we going to get rid of imposter syndrome but actually thinking about what you said earlier that it is a part of us um, yes. and thinking about what you said there that it may have some kind of value provided that it's kept in balance I'm wondering do you agree that how do you get rid of it is even the right question um no it probably isn't the right question it's how do I manage it how do I put it into proportion I don't think we ever can get rid of it because it's part of us um and and occasionally it might it might help us to just stop and think about something a little bit more so you have written your own next question there, which is how do we manage <laughs> imposter syndrome? So uh, do you have any thoughts on how we manage it? There's all sorts of things um, about managing it. And, and I, um, am I right to think we can we can alongside this podcast, we can put some resources to some other tips? Yeah, we um, will. Um, so that people can look at some other signposting. Absolutely. We'll share whatever you recommend. Yeah. Um, so I'll share two or three things. Um, in this in this podcast actually but I think the, the first one for me that has really hugely helped me and it might sound like sound like a really strange thing to do when we're trying to minimize we're trying to minimize the impact of the imposter or the inner critic voice on our lives we're trying to stop it getting in the way of opportunities um, but one of the ways of doing that is actually by turning up the volume on the inner critic voice um, and the reason I say that is so that we can really get to know it and really understand when does it crop up? What are the kinds of things that my particular inner critic says to me or the, the particular imposter sayings um, that my inner critic has? Um, and the reason for doing that is once we start really thinking about that voice and what it says, we can start to think of it as a different voice to our own and to distinguish it from our own voice. And so a really useful thing to do is to write down all of the sayings that our imposter voice has. So you're not good enough or you should have done more things today. You were terrible at that interview. You sounded silly in that presentation. Everyone thinks you're stupid. You know, all of these different things. But we all have our own little flavor of inner critic. Um, you know, mine's very, very impatient. It has very high standards for what it expects me to do in a day. So if I haven't ticked everything on my to-do list, it gets quite angry with me. It expects me to, to instantly understand things and, uh, and to be very quick and sharp intellectually. So when I, when I think about that voice, and, and if I then start to think, what kind of person might have those opinions? What kind of person might say those sorts of things? I can start to think of a character or a name, um, and often I encourage my coaching clients and my workshop clients to to think of maybe a character from a book or a film or it could be somebody from my life from my you know a school teacher that I didn't like or something like that but a character and so I can actually start to give my imposter voice a name 
And once I do that, it kind of unlocks that ability to think, actually, I don't want you to be making decisions about my life. Um, so my, my imposter voice, I will share with you, my imposter voice is called Jeremy for various reasons. <laughs> and when I start to hear that, that dialogue of, you know, not good enough, you'll make a fool of yourself. Because I've thought about Jeremy quite a lot as a character, and I've actually, and I encourage people to think about, you know, what, where does, where does this person hang out? Where do they live? What do they like doing? So it's a different person to me. I can then think, ah, that's Jeremy. Okay, I know what's going on. This is an imposter situation. What's it trying to protect me from? Okay, is that real? Is it true that that it's the case that I'm going to make a fool of myself? No, I'm going to ignore Jeremy today. And I actually, in my head, I say thank you, or even out loud if I'm on my own, I'll say thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for your advice. But actually, what you're trying to do is to protect me from everything. And actually, if I'm protected from this opportunity, I might be protected from something good. But also, once I hear that voice, I think, ah, I'm stretching myself. You know, the comfort stretch panic idea. I'm stretching myself. Oh, that means there's a learning opportunity for me here. What is the thing that I'm learning now? And because I'm naturally curious, I'm a researcher, I want to learn. So it also brings in that element of, well, what's the, what's the learning opportunity here? And of course, I want that rather than to hide away um, from, from the thing that's a potential threat. Um, and some of my friends know about Jeremy now. And so sometimes when I'm talking myself down or I'm talking myself out of something and saying, oh, no, I don't want to do that because <laughs> dot, 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 whatever reason or excuse. Some of my friends will say, um, could you please tell Jeremy to go away? Because they know now when when I'm being negative about myself, it's not me, it's Jeremy. And if we think about this person, this character as somebody who wants us to stay small, wants us to stay hidden, wants us to not grow and stretch why would we ever listen to their opinion you know if we agree with them and we act on their advice it's always going to result in us not stretching ourselves or learning something because we're going to hide from an opportunity i guess that gives us amazing power to to take decisions and really to think through what the consequences are that we we might nevertheless listen to Jeremy or you know whatever we're going to call our uh, imposter voice and might ultimately decide not to do the thing but actually we would know in that point what we're choosing is not to take the stretch opportunity that you know it's exactly it, it wasn't that the situation or, or the opportunity was in and of itself impossible but actually there were a number of things that made us feel like we didn't want to stretch ourselves that day in that way absolutely so what it does is it, it's it's absolutely presenting what the real choice is and that we're actively taking a choice rather than than subconsciously just being guided by our inner critic so as they turning up the volume but also it forces us to acknowledge what what am i choosing so it's not that i'm you know if i if i've been asked to present in front of some very highly trained intelligent people my by listening to the imposter and thinking what is it trying to protect me from okay the learning about maybe I don't understand something. So if I go and talk in front of those people, I might realize I don't understand something. And so I've stretched myself to learn that. Um, so I'm choosing, rather, so I'm choosing actually today, I don't feel like I have the energy to be able to do that bit of learning rather than choosing, oh, I don't want to be scared and feel uncomfortable. 
I don't know if I'm making sense here. So we're actually, we're, we're making the, we're being really clear about what we're choosing. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And the, and whatever choice we make is valid, provided we're being honest with ourselves about what the absolutely. choice is and why we made it. Yeah. And there yeah. will be days when we don't have the energy yeah. to stretch ourselves. Yes. Um, but as long as, as long as we're honest. not displacing that onto others or onto other circumstances, but recognizing we chose not to stretch ourselves that day for yeah. whatever reason. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other kind of the accompanying voice in our head that that sits maybe on the other shoulder to our imposter voice or, or Jeremy in my in my um, in my case. Um, the other person that I choose to, to, to tap into and listen to is what I call my future self. So I imagine I've, I've also done quite a bit of work thinking about if I cast myself, if I could go into a time machine 20 years into the future and meet myself in 20 years and have a conversation with myself in 20 years, that future self would be saying all the right things to me to help me make the right choice about those scary situations. So my future self would be saying things like, well, if you don't go and talk in front of that group of people, you will never know what's going to happen or there might be somebody in that group of, of people who might offer you a job or actually those people are probably really interested in hearing from you because they don't know everything either so my future self tends to be much kinder much more calm sees the bigger picture and and wants me to develop and stretch myself it what it wants me so it, I don't know if you have if you've ever kind of had a conversation with your future self but they tend to be kinder calmer more like nudging us to go and make a mistake it doesn't matter the big picture is it doesn't matter um so in that situation then if i if i tap in and i and i talk to jeremy and i talk to my future self what's being presented to me in those moments is um a choice between avoiding learning something or potentially opening up a huge opportunity for myself even if it's a bit scary and mostly I'll go with the future self but as you say sometimes I think actually today I've no resilience and I'm just not going to but I'm consciously making that choice. I think my conversations with my future self are often exactly that about well when I look back on this what am I going to tell myself about this yeah. decision and okay is it objectively true that I'm tired I've got too much on I don't feel I can handle this um, and then in particular, I think my future self, which takes the long view, is also keeping account of how many other times I've recently said that to myself. Yes. You know, have, have, have I, for the last six, nine months, turned down all of these stretch opportunities and new growth, new learning opportunities because I'm tired or, you know, I mean, yeah, many yeah. of us are tired at the yeah. moment. But, <laughs> um, you know, is there a pattern of me turning these things mm. down or telling myself mm. stories about not yeah. being able to take stuff on? I think that's probably where my future voice has been yeah. really beneficial to me. Yeah. It's, it's alerted me to the fact that if you keep saying no to things, however real it might feel on that day, then actually you're just not progressing. Absolutely. Yeah. Here's a pattern that I can point out to you because I see that big picture and and, and the future self, um, another way of, of uh, this is another tool really in, in sort of dealing with the inner critic. I, I imagine my future self to be my line manager. And so 
when I've made these choices or when I've got to the end of a day or the end of a week, I imagine I'm having a conversation with my future self and I'm saying, here's what I did, what I did this week. And they're saying, and they're giving me an appraisal almost. And, I, and they might say, I'm really proud of you because you stepped up and you went for that thing. Or they might say, really, you avoided that thing again? Or, but, but it's in a kind of a kind, you know, what would have been the worst thing that could have happened if you had done that and you had failed? Um, so it's, it's quite an interesting, that's another kind of interesting tool to use, I suppose. I know that you mentioned to me previously a model, which I think relates to that, you know, that, that how one accounts for one's, for one's decisions. And, and you called it a kind of daily data collection, the, the three, two, one model. I wondered if yes. you wanted to bring that in here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the background to this is that our inner critic, our imposter voice, our very clever imposter voice and inner critic, when it's trying to convince us not to put ourselves forward for something, it drags up lots of data from the past. So remember when you did look silly or you were embarrassed or someone did catch you out, those sorts of things. <clears throat> so if you imagine that every negative thing that happens to us is feeding data to, to feed our inner critic and keep it strong. So I almost think of it like a little computer game that the ghosts are being fed <laughs> every time something bad happens to me. Um, but when we have a very strong inner critic and a strong imposter syndrome, it also, because if, if it's there all the time in our head, it also tends to filter out when good things happen to us. So it will dismiss. So one of the, you asked me the question earlier, where does it manifest? One of the things I missed out saying was it often manifests when we are, when we've won something or something good has happened. Because what it does is it diminishes um, that, that success. So I've won a, an award. My imposter voice will say, well, you know, everyone wins that award sooner or later it's easy the award is just for taking part or if somebody gives me some lovely feedback my inner critic will say well they're just being nice or you know they they kind of try and diminish so what they try and do is they not only gather and protect the negative data they also try and remove and dismiss and minimize the positive data so a really useful tool, and this has worked so well with loads of my coaching clients and people who I've had on workshops, is to start to try and redress the balance with a different data collection. And it's a habit we need to develop every day where we're purpose purposefully looking for positive data. So you mentioned the three, two, one um, thing. So um, are you willing for me to try this out on you? Yes. I'm <laughs> okay. So the idea is that um, every day, we just write down, and it takes five minutes every day. We write down um, what I call what we call a daily three, two, one. So the three is three wins that you've had in the in the last day. So a win doesn't have to be I've won the lottery. It could it's basically a win at work or life. So something good happened. Something went my way. So it could be a really big thing, like I've had a manuscript accepted, or it could be something small, but it made me feel good, like. I finished writing two pages when I thought I'd only write half a page. Or it could be nothing to do with work. It could be I made a cake and it rose and it was really tasty. Or there was no queue at the coffee shop. But it's three things that remind us things go well for me. Okay, so could you can you think of three from the last day or the last 24 hours for you? And there's no judgment as to how big or small they are. 
it's funny that um, my mind went straight to the the run I did last night was I was very I did I did a five mile run and I was very pleased with my time so I guess that's a win um work-wise I delivered a 90-minute session at lunchtime on a topic that was new to me and I was very pleased with how it went and the feedback afterwards was nice that felt like a win and I think the third thing was I had a really good meeting with my team this morning and it uh, was really positive we made some good decisions and I felt like we kind of ended for Easter now on a really positive note we'd wrapped up the terms work and we've got some notes to come back to at the start you know in, in two weeks time after holiday so that felt like a win as well yeah brilliant so so those three things reinforce good things happen to me and and our imposter voice likes to make sweeping sweeping statements like oh nothing ever works and you know it has this kind of dramatic voice sometimes so that's the three in our three two one the two in our three two one is two strengths or skills that you have used today for good effect so it could have been in creating those wins or it, they could be completely separate to the wins that we've had so tell me two strengths or skills that you have used today to good effect i think one of them is related to the win i think i was quite pleased with the the way that i put the session together that i delivered and i think one of my strengths is pulling lots of different ideas and models together and still making a coherent like learning experience, whether it's a workshop or a seminar or something. I think that's something that I have invested a lot in over the years and I think it worked today. That's a strength I used. And I think another skill, um, I had to do quite a lot of um, stuff this morning, editing a paper. And I think that's a skill that sort of, you know, uh, editing and redrafting. And I was uh, felt like I was, using a strength of mine to to sort of positive effect yeah and i know from experience that it, that absolutely is a skill of yours <laughs> that is hugely beneficial to people um great well, so 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 again that 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 two thing is that the two skills and strengths is then reinforcing i can do things i am capable i do have skills i am learning i am making an impact so that's reinforcing the data there and then the one of our three two one is a positive emotion that you felt or a positive feeling that you felt in the last day so it could be a feeling of joy or excitement or relaxation or even if it was only fleeting what was what was one that you experienced in the last day? When I got up this morning, I went into the lounge and I opened the balcony door and the sun was coming up and there were no cars outside because it was early and I could hear the birds and the, it was a spring morning and I'd slept well and I just stood there and I thought, oh, this is gorgeous. I don't know, what, what would we call that? Like yeah. contentment or bliss? Contentment, or yeah, joy, it could be joy again. Yeah. 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 I just had a moment standing there looking out on that spring morning kind of scene thinking, oh, this is lovely. And it set me up for the morning. Brilliant. So that's great. So again, it's, it's reinforcing, even if I have days where I feel tired or frustrated or angry, it's not the whole day. And again, our imposter voice wants a sweeping statement of that was a terrible day where you felt awful all day. Actually, no, even if it was only for five minutes, I felt really joyful or content this morning. Um, and so over time, the, the daily 321 is gathering a huge mass of data. And it, what it does is it not only is building data, but it also starts to train us to notice good things more often rather than dismiss them and forget about them immediately. 
because we'll start to notice in the moment, oh, I'm having a good time, or oh, that was great, I'm going to celebrate, or I'm using a skill, because you know that later in the day, you've got to write it down on your 3-2-1 list, you think, oh, right, I'll, I'll clock that now, and notice it, so it's raising that consciousness of things go well, things work out, I am good, <laughs> Um, those sorts of things and it, it just boosts it it also is a really useful um, tool for boosting resilience as well and for some of my coaching clients the three two one has been probably the most transformational thing they've done and and often those were people who and I remember one coaching client who said um I really don't want to do that. I set it them as to them as a homework and they said, I really don't want to do the three, two, one. And I thought, oh no. And then they said, so that means that I really should do it because it must be good for me. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I, I met her uh, a year last October, so October, 2019. And last Christmas, so a year, more than a year later, she sent me an email and said, I'm just sending you my Christmas 321 and I want you to know that I'm doing, still doing it every day and it's completely transformed my positivity at work and my willingness to do things and it's boosted my resilience and all sorts of things like that. So, And that's not an uncommon reaction. But I think one of the things, you know, if anyone's listening and they're thinking of trying the 321, I'll just say two more things. One is it works much more if you're accountable to somebody else so if you've got a friend that you can text your 321s to each other every day and um, so it keeps you accountable for doing it the other thing is I know a lot of let's think about classic let's stereotype researchers and academics we're trained to be critical we're trained to spot what's wrong with something we're trained to see where something could be better it can feel really uncomfortable to train ourselves to see the positives and so often I have people who find it really awkward to say, I've had three wins. They just find it really quite difficult. And what I'd say to those people is that doesn't mean that it's the wrong thing to do or you can't do it. It's just you've got to train yourself and learn how to be positive. Um, it doesn't mean you're going to all of a sudden be naive and overly optimistic about things. We're just trying to redress the balance a little bit. Um, yeah, full, so full really disclosure, simple. I knew you were going to ask me this exercise, so I prepared my three... <laughs> beforehand <laughs> but it does get easier so what the first, I started doing it and I do uh, I text a friend who's also a coach and we mess it and we've actually started to shake it up a little bit now um and so we added we took one away and added one and one of them we added last year was what has happened today that's positive that would never have happened if covid hadn't been going on ah. so when we were feeling gloomy about the pandemic so it was things like I had lunch in my garden rather than on a train or, you know, those kind of, that would never have happened if it wasn't for COVID. Or I've learned a skill of, you know, navigating Zoom or all sorts of things like that. So so you can start to tailor it, but I would stick with the with the, the basic to start with. Um, so that's so I think that's we've got two or three little tools there and there are a few others. So if if I can send you some resources to put into the podcast um, links and there are a few other things that people might find useful as well I think we should do that and I think we should obviously have you back for further podcasts and have you back for further training on the research and development program and um, this has been super super interesting and useful I wonder did you have any final thoughts you wanted to wrap up with or any last observations about imposter syndrome for our audience we've probably covered most things I think the one thing I might just say that I don't think we've articulated yet is in a way having those feelings is a good thing 
because it means we're stretching ourselves it means there's an opportunity to change and to learn and I think I think so don't be scared of it don't be annoyed that you have it almost reframe it to say oh great imposter voice is here there's something great that I might be able to tap into here or learn even if it means I'm I might fail at the first hurdle something good's going to come of this there's, some, there's something out there that's challenging me and what is it and to be curious about it rather than to feel bad that it's happening that's such a positive message to end on I think, <laughs> should, I think we should stop there thanks so much for being here yeah. and it was absolutely great so yeah thank you again you're very welcome thank you Thanks very much for listening. We hope you found that RD audio recording useful. If you would like to look at past recordings, you can find these on our website, www.rdp.cam.ac.uk forward slash RD audio, or you can find them on whichever platform you choose to get your podcasts from. I mentioned at the beginning, we'd be really glad to hear from you if you have suggestions for future episodes or feedback on the sessions we've already done. Please consider subscribing and if you have a couple of minutes to spare, we'd be really grateful if you would leave a rating on your podcast platform. Thanks again. Bye.